Hi everyone, welcome back to the show. Before we start this episode, I just wanted to come in and tell you we had a little bit of a problem with one of the microphone settings on my side, but I didn't not want to put the show out because I think it's full of some great information from Kevin, some great nuggets of information regarding finance and strategic ways to obtain finance for HMO. So please bear with us. The microphone does kind of kick in towards the end of the show, but if you can get past that, I hope you get great value from it. Thanks a lot. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. And today we've got someone very special for you. Now, we talk a lot in property about creative finance and how to finance deals. You know, all the, the, the what ifs start to people ask questions about what if I can't get finance and what if I've got counter court judgments and, um, you know, just literally what if I can't afford to do this? So rather than me sort of giving everybody my opinion, I thought we'll bring on a special guest and you may have heard of him. We today have got Kevin Wright from Positive Property Finance. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Rick. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, inviting me on. No problem at all. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Now, I've got loads of questions here for you. So before we start, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and sort of why you got into creative finance in the first place? Well, I actually started um, in property before I started in finance. Uh, I did my first buy, refurb, sell project way back in 1983. Uh, made some money on that and reinvested that in uh, another deal. Um, and then I sort of uh, progressed to buy, refurb uh, and rent out. And for the first couple, I actually rented it out with uh, tenants with, living with me. So I lived in, in there and got tenants in with me. Um, so effectively, I lived for free because they paid the mortgage. Um, then I sort of got into just renting out single lets and then renting out by the room because I worked out that you can make more money by doing that. And of course, anyone that's um, familiar with HMOs, as I know you are uh, very much, would know exactly that. I've done new build, invested in commercial property. So quite a few uh, of the sort of different um, strategies you know, over the years I've done. Finance came later. Uh, got into finance not, not particularly uh, mortgage broken at the time, but just general financial advice. If we go back to 1983, so you started with buy, refurb, sell. So that's kind of what we call flips now, isn't flips, it? Yeah. yeah. So how different was it in the market in 1983 in terms of being able to get property and get finance than it is today? Much more difficult. Much more difficult today or it was more difficult back then? It was much more difficult then. I mean, buy-to-let mortgages didn't exist. There wasn't really the short-term finance as it was now. How did I do it? I literally went to see my bank manager when you had a bank manager that um, had lending authority and just put my proposition to him. I found this property. It was in a mess. I could do it up and sell it for a profit. Uh, and he backed me. I put some cash into it that I got from just selling the flat that I'd been living in. You know, And I lived in it while I was doing it up and then sold it on. Um, so those first few ones were just getting a bank, you know, the bank manager to support you with, with a loan. It wasn't really a, a, a bridging loan. I mean, you know, it didn't make the distinction then. It was just a bank loan. Yeah, yeah, which is really the only thing that people could do back then. Was yeah. this then sort of, you know, in, in the times of 
was this a little bit early for Bradford and Bingley? You know, Mortgage Express and what have you. Did they come? Oh, way before that. Was it? Yeah, because I know that obviously people then, you know, going forwards and sort of forward the clock a little bit, people were doing back-to-back refinance, weren't they? Sort of buying property below market value, refinancing it the same day and getting paid to buy houses. Yeah, I was, and I was, I was doing the brokering for that by that time. Okay, let's go through the timeline then. So we'll talk about the Mortgage Express stuff. So you, um, you got some properties to flip, you got into the market, then you realised that the HMOs were a little bit more lucrative. Yeah. What happened from there? How did it all progress? Well, you know, there was nothing like a buy-to-let. Um, there was nothing like a um, buy-to-let mortgages. So, um, but also there was no way then of tracking how many mortgages you had. So I just applied for another main residence mortgage. System um, is in place now, Kevin, for that. So you say there was no way then to track mortgages. How do people track mortgages now? Well, because it's all listed on credit files um, and that sort of thing. So, so your credit file would, would show um, every mortgage that you have. And of course, it's, it's listed on land registry as well, isn't it? On land registry and all that. But, but there wasn't any... You know, um, th- this was the embry- embryonic days of investing in, in, in property. You know, there was there was no real community like there is now. There were no products like there are now. So you just got a mortgage. You know, there weren't the only mortgage you could get was was a, you know, a main residence mortgage. It wasn't called that because there was no other kind. It was uh, just a mortgage. I just got a mortgage. So when I wanted to buy another property, I got another mortgage and then the same again. And. You know, they didn't, uh, there wasn't the restrictions of saying, well, how are you going to rent it out? Because they didn't, they, they didn't understand the concept of renting it out. Um, they didn't ask and I didn't tell them. I'm not, please, please don't do any of this now. You know, yeah, I mean. Things have changed a lot now, yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking, you know, about 30 years ago, you know, and buy to let mortgages uh, as, a, as, a, as a product class, you know, didn't come until, you know, a number of years later. So yeah. what then took your eye to think, you know what, I can get into this finance bit, start doing a bit of broken. What, how did all of that begin? Really just um, got, uh, I was at a dinner party and having a chat to a guy and, and um, uh, he said, uh, you know, you want to come and work for me? And, and I said, well, but I want to do that. And he, he sort of sold me the um, proposal and it was working for an insurance company at the time, quite a big one called Pearl Assurance. You, you know, you had the man from the Pru and the man from the Pearl. Those were the two. Um, the people that used to come knocking on the door. Yeah, that's it. And that's what I did. You know, back in 1992, that's what I was doing. So you're going um, around door to door selling insurance policies? Basically. Yeah. I remember those days, Kevin, I do. I remember as a kid, um, I was sat there and it was always the insurance man or the man from the Pru uh, knocking on the door, always with his suit on, uh, just collecting yeah. payments for the insurance policies. That's right. Yeah. A completely un- unsustainable business model in the modern day, but um, you know it um, it had started in Victorian times and and persevered, you know, right through to um, pretty much the end of end of the last century before it became unviable uh, to, to work that way. So um, during the ten years I worked with the Pearl, that I started getting into mortgages as well, and then uh, they shut down. I got made redundant in two thousand and two. So I thought, okay. I can start up my own business doing that. And, you know, over those, over those next few years, up until the credit crunch, I got less and less involved with pensions and investments and more and more involved with um, mortgages, and in particular, mortgages for investors. And then you've got all the 
stuff that you were talking about um, of Mortgage Express, same day refinance, one day bridging, all that type of stuff. So, so Kevin, we, we, everyone talks a little bit about those good old days, you know, Bradford and Bingley and Mortgage Express. And I suppose for the, the newer investors that are just joining us that don't really know much about this, you know, this back to back refinancing, could you explain what it was and how it worked? Uh, happy to. Um, I mean, it was it was an investor's um, nirvana. You know, it was absolute perfection. So you would have, um, so we'll just use some numbers. So let's say you'd got a property that was on the market for 100. It was worth 100. But just like nowadays, there are motivated sellers. And let's just say you agreed to buy it for 75,000. Mortgage Express were happy to do a day one remortgage. And I mean, literally day one. So you've made the application to remortgage the property before you purchased it. And on completion day, in the morning, you would use bridging finance to buy the property for uh, 75,000. Now it was worth 100, so the bridger would lend you that. Now you probably put down a bit of money on most of them at, at, at the time. So it wasn't a no money in left, you know, uh, deal, but you know, so you, you, if there was a if there was a shortfall in what the bridger would lend, you'd put up a few grand in the morning to buy it. So you'd actually own the property in the morning. Now, in the afternoon, then your mortgage express mortgage would kick in. Now they were lending 85% at the time. And because it was worth a, a hundred thousand, they would lend 85% of a hundred. So you bought a property at 75,000 in the morning, you refinanced it at 85,000 in the afternoon, so you owned a property in the space of a day, you owned a property not only with none of your own cash left in it, but £10,000 worth of cash um, in your pocket. I mean, that's nuts, isn't it? If we could do that these days. I mean, I know that people talked about this in the good old days and what have you. So I know that people were building massive portfolios back then just by doing this. What happened? Why did it stop? Okay, so when I say there were, you know, uh, there were people buying five a week, I'm, that's not an exaggeration. You know, they were buying five properties a week um, because they found, you know, all they had to do was find the uh, motivated seller and everything else just rolled on. So, yeah, I mean, people built up um, portfolios in a very short space of time, you know, of, you know, 100 properties. And they do that within two years. The credit crunch uh, blew it all apart. Companies like Mortgage Express, uh, and there were were a, a plethora of other obscure mortgage lenders who were, all came out of the woodwork and said, well, we can make money doing this. And, you know, they would literally lend on pretty much anything. And then what they would do, there was a process of what they call securitization. So they would get, I don't know, um, let's say 50 million pounds worth of mortgages. They bundle it up and sell it on to another financial institution mm. and then get another tranche of funding to build it again. So they were building up, it, it was contrary to the, the, the way that mortgage books were built up historically. So the Halifax, you know, would build up a mortgage book and it would get bigger year on year because they would just manage their own mortgage book. But in those pre-credit crunch days, you had a load of new lenders that had no inclination to build up a mortgage book they were just selling mortgages, packaging it up, and then selling it on to other financial institutions who would then effectively take over an income source and manage it. Um, now, that worked fine 
until the credit crunch, because the credit crunch was unique in financial circumstances. There have been recessions before, but there was never a recession where the banks stopped lending. I mean, I was around in, in previous recessions. Um, the banks, you know, in, in I think it was 1989, that, that recession, the banks were desperate for you to for you to borrow money, but no one was interested because you're in the depths of the recession. And that's where all the deals came about, you know, all the fixed rates and discounted rates and tracker rates and everything else. That came out of that recession because before then, as I said previously, in the 80s, you just had a mortgage. Mm. You didn't have a fixed rate for three years or five years or whatever. You didn't have a discounted rate or, you know, so all these deals came out of lenders' desperation to try and find a way to entice people to, to borrow money on a mortgage. Um, and of course, they created their own Frankenstein because once they introduced them, they were never able to withdraw them. So that we, we, we've still got all those things today. So with um, those Mortgage Express customers that have still got them, are they secure for the term of the mortgage? Is there any chance that the mortgage, I mean, do Mortgage Express even exist at all anymore? Or have all those debts been bought out by somebody else? No, there's, um, I mean, there's a phrase um, that we use and, and it's zombie lenders. Right. So they're like the living dead of lenders. They don't trade, but they still have a mortgage book that they're running down. Now, Mortgage Express are and have for the last 10 years been running down their mortgage book. Now, to a degree, they'll let, uh, and there are a number of, um, uh, to answer your previous question, there are a number of landlords that have still got Mortgage Express mortgages. Um, and they're now on a very low interest rate because they were um, trackers. So they've, they've tracked the uh, Bank of England base rate. Um, and of course, in high interest rate days, which they were pre-credit crunch, they didn't, they didn't uh, no lender foresaw, you know, we would drop to interest rates of um, less than 1% and stay there for a decade. Absolutely nuts. And I know that I do still see people that have got mortgage express mortgages, but yeah. not necessarily now on the correct product. So this lends me quite nicely, Kevin, to say, what, what's your thoughts on that? So people that were taking out these uh, mortgage express products, less than 1% on trackers, um, they would just buy to let mortgages then because there wasn't really anything else to choose from. But now no. they're trading as HMOs. Is yeah. that a would that be a breach of terms? Yes. Uh, if it is, what, what would happen to that mortgage express no. If they found out. So um, now you have to understand the mindset of um, the rump of Mortgage Express. Now they've got one raison d'etre, one mission in life, and that is to shut down their mortgage book in the shortest number of years possible. Mm. So um, they look at every angle to get a mortgage off of their books, and they are quite aggressive about doing so. Um, so the people that have still got mortgage, express mortgages, have largely kept their head down um, and not made themselves um, noticeable to mortgage express. Now, whenever someone pops up and, and becomes noticeable, um, often it's by going into arrears uh, for any reason and not, not being able to keep up the payments, or they, there's a clear breach of terms and conditions Mortgage Express sees on that and they would gleefully repossess the properties. Right. Would they give anybody a, um, a period of time to be able to get on the finance or is it literally right, you know, we're just coming straight out here as quickly as possible? It depends. What, the, what they often do is what they call put an LPA receiver in. Right. What does that mean, Kevin? 
it means that effectively they seize control of the property. The tenants are sent um, a letter to say that they are forbidden to pay the rent to the landlord anymore. It must go to this receiver and um, failure to do so will mean eviction. Goodness me. I mean, that's pretty hard, isn't it? I mean, we don't want to scare anybody on the on the podcast, but it is a, you know, a, a stark lesson to people that you've got to have the correct product because, you yeah. know, if you are trading on a mortgage express mortgage and if you are, you know, um, not using your, your terms and conditions in the way that they were set out, then potentially this could happen. Uh, and it has. No question about it. Um, and you're just playing into mortgage express hands because they are looking for any transgression to shut down a mortgage. Now, with some um, landlords in the past where they've got a portfolio with them, they've decided that they want to get the portfolio revalued, which the landlord is required to pay for. So they demand that, that however many properties are in the portfolio that they control, they get them revalued. Now, they'll send one of their, their choice of valuer in, um, who you could say has got a, a clear indication uh, to be uh, not to be over generous. And again, this is more relevant in some areas of the country. So what comes back is they say, your property's underwater. We only give you an 85% mortgage. You're now in excess of that. So for you to continue having your mortgage on your portfolio, you will need to put X amount of cash to bring it back into line with 85% of the valuation we've just got across your portfolio. You can't do that. Oh, well, that's a shame. We're just going to have to take control and put an LPA receiver in and then dispose of your, your portfolio. No, this is real, isn't it? I mean, it's not, not good news for a lot of people. No. Kevin, will, will they give a little bit of leeway? So, I mean, I don't have any mortgages, express mortgages, but for example, they came to me, they said that I'm going to put an LPA on. If I went back and said, look, you know what, I'll, I'll buy you out, I'll, I'll pay back within, I don't know, let's say seven days and go out and get bridging. Is that an option or is it no? It can be. I mean, it, it just depends how awkward they want to be. Yeah. You know, um, and it, it can be, but but would you would they give you three months to refinance, you know, or, you know, as you would normally, unlikely. Wow, you know, start lesson for that. As I said, I don't want to, you know, put the uh, uh, the scaremongers out there, but it's real, and this stuff is real. And we talk about this a lot. It's so important that you get the correct product because what we are doing is future-proofing our business for years and years to come. So people that are investing now, Kevin, we're telling them how to do it properly, so they don't have all of these issues in 15, yeah. 20 years' time. Yeah, well, you see, there's a, um, there's a myth that goes around, and, it, and I've seen it um, for years, and that is lenders don't care as long as you pay, make the payments on time. Mm, yeah, I hear that a lot. It's not true. Mm. Now, if you're breaching their terms and conditions and they get to find out about it, then it's not unusual to get what's termed as a cease and desist letter. Yeah. Um, which basically says... We know what you're doing, stop doing it, or we'll call the loan in. You know, and the, the two most common breaches are um, uh, running an HMO on, uh, on a standard buy-to-let mortgage. Yeah. Most of which, not all, but most of which restrict you to having a single AST on the property. That's in the terms and conditions buried somewhere in the terms and conditions. And the other one is service accommodation usage. And another condition on, a standard condition on the majority of buy-to-let mortgages, it sets a minimum maximum rental term. 
you can't rent a property out for a period of less than six months, nor can you rent it out for a, a period in excess of 12 months, because those are the timeframes for ASTs. I think it's fair to say as well, though, that every company is different. And going back to single AST for the whole house or individual. Now, um, obviously, you know, I've got a massive portfolio. Um, I think it's very important that you just disclose everything to your broker and all of your intentions and for them to go out and find the right product. Now, we don't do whole house ASTs. All of our contracts are single only AST, um, but that is disclosed and we've got the correct mortgage um, product for that. So, you know, we generally use Kent Reliance Interbay for those type of yeah. products. Um, but the smaller lenders, um, you know, Lloyds Bank and what have you, smaller lenders for um, the mortgage works, et cetera, may well, as you say, just put those clauses in. But Kevin, what's to stop the tenant from moving out? So they might sign a six-month contract. But what if they move out in three months' time and you've got no control over that? Where do you stand? Well, well the lenders are not concerned with the behaviour of tenants. Okay. What they're concerned with is the way that you're renting it out. Now, if you've got tenant a tenant in there or, or multiple tenants, if you've got the right product, so Kent Reliance would be a good lender for, for multiple tenants on the, in the same property because they allow you to have multiple ASTs yeah. in the same property. The mortgage works, well, they have different products. Mm. Most of their products don't allow you to have that many multiple ASTs, but they have an HMO product. Um, so that's specifically set up. So, but you can't, just because TMW do a um, HMO product, doesn't mean that they let you run HMOs on their ordinary product. And I've seen them then send out cease and desist letters because people are running an HMO on the standard buy-to-let product. And, and then, would, they, would they allow you to flip over to the new product because they're still trading? You know, are they, are they calling their book in or would they just allow you to change no, over for a different rate? They, no, they say, because we've caught you using it in an unauthorised manner, we're not going to switch you over to, really? to the... Even though we've got the right product, we're not going to give it to you. Really? Wow. Go elsewhere. Do they? Mm, interesting. Or, or, convert, or convert back to a single tenant and prove to us that you've only got a single tenant living in there and then we'll let you keep the mortgage. Interesting. Interesting. <clears throat> I suppose there's going to be a lot of people listening to this, Kevin, thinking... Oh, <laughs> you know, I know this happens. I know it's out there. And that's why, you know, conversations like this are so important that people get the ducks in a row. Make sure you do it properly. Sleep straight at night. Now, you mentioned uh, Kent Reliance. We've got a lot of Kent Reliance mortgages. We've got a lot of Interbay mortgages as well yeah. um, because they are all perfect for the product that we need them to do. Now, Kevin, what about, so here's the situation. Um, you see it on Facebook all the time. People go into the HMO market. Well, actually, they buy a property, it's a house, so that's a planning class C3, and then they take a mortgage on a buy-to-let or something similar, they mm. smash the property up, and they change the infrastructure completely and turn it into a HMO, mm. and then they refinance it onto a HMO mortgage afterwards. Now, mm. I know that's not the right way to do it. You know that's not the right, right way to do it. Mm. I do know that's what people are doing. What's your, advice on, what's your advice on that? What are the ramifications, and what should they be doing? Okay, well... There might, there's one thing that um, maybe the people that do that are not aware of, and that is the way that councils behave with HMO license applications. It's quite commonplace for the council in receipt of an HMO application to do a land registry search, check if there's a mortgage on it, and if there is, 
to inform the lender that they're in receipt of an HMO application. Now, when people are shouting out there saying they don't do that, of course they wouldn't do that. They haven't got time to do that. Let me tell you something. They absolutely do do that. All of you, when the licensing learn, mandatory licensing act changed in October last year, yeah. had to put in several new applications and properties we didn't have before. And I can guarantee you that the council pulled off the land registry and they wrote me a letter asking me to disclose all of the said lenders that were on land registry so they could serve notice to them. So they do do it, folks. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's where you see some desist letters come from because the lender says, oh, OK, uh, HMO license. Uh, this is a standard buy to let mortgage. What are you doing that for? But Kevin, what if, right, so they, they take the property, it's no lot, it's not a HMO yet. So they buy it on a buy-to-let mortgage, they do the um, the refurbishment, yeah. and then they apply for a HMO mortgage yeah. at the same time as applying for the license. So they've got a period of time there when yeah. potentially they're on the wrong product, but they're kind of just like trying to bypass the system a little bit. Yeah, the, um, so <clears throat> uh, yes, you're right, there, there are people doing that. Now, the work they've done to convert it, particularly if they're doing significant conversions and putting multiple... Um, on suites in that in itself is a breach of the basic buy to let lenders terms and conditions because they if you said to them look i just want to knock seven bells out of this property and turn it into a six bedroom hmo are you okay with that there's no way they would say yes so you're doing it behind the lender's back um, because they would never give you permission to do it now that's one aspect of it it's hard for them to 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 keep tabs on what people are doing with their properties. I mean, they don't have the resources to, to patrol the streets you know, um, of every uh, mortgage they've got. Now, so what would uh, be the best product for that then, Kevin? So okay, the other angle on it is what time frame is, is this? So uh, having bought it on a buy-to-let mortgage and then done the conversion, even though the lender wouldn't let you do it if they knew, but they didn't know, and then you try and mortgage on, uh, get a remortgage onto the correct product that allows you to do an HMO. What time frame is that? Now, typically it'd be a matter of months. Now you then come to another breach because what you've effectively done is got a, um, a short-term loan using a long-term product. And the only reason you, the only way you got that initial buy-to-let mortgage was by engaging in deception. Because if you'd been transparent with the mortgage lender and said, look, I want this mortgage. However, I only want it for a few months because I'm going to knock everything else out and I'm going to refinance onto another mortgage. They would never have granted you the mortgage because they don't do short term loans. Even the ones with no redemption penalty, if you were um, uh, transparent, you would not get the loan. So the only way you get a buy to let mortgage, if your intent is to refinance it, within a matter of months is to using that old phrase, be economical with the truth. Mm. So you or get the correct product in the first place and do it via bridging. Well, that, okay. So there are two, you know, now um, HMO lenders generally don't give you mortgage products um, to take something that's not an existing HMO and turn it into one. HMO products are for properties that are an HMO day one. So therefore, if you're going to buy a property and convert it to an HMO, the only transparent ways to do it are with cash, which can be your own cash or someone else's that you borrow privately, or bridging finance, 
Um, and, and then, yeah, because bridging is um, is precisely of that purpose. It's a short term loan for you to do something to the property that would um, increase the value and then refinance. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome information there, Kevin. You know, I can talk to you all day about some of the old strategies and the creative stuff that people were doing then. Just before we close that element off, you know, when it was the end of Mortgages Express and, and it stopped, what was the noise in the communities back then? I know you said that we didn't have the kind of communities that we've got now, but I see a lot at the moment. As soon as something happens in our industry now, Kevin, you see this a lot as well. That's it. It's the doom and gloom merchants have come out and say the PRS is dead. It's all over. We've had our day. We need to move on and do something different. Mm. I presume, I don't know, because I didn't have any mortgage express mortgages, but was it the same kind of noise then? Was everybody saying, that's it, it's over. We've had our fun. Now we've got to go and do something else? Well, there was a raging panic. The goose that laid the golden egg had just died. So there was confusion for uh, an, an inaction, really. Pretty much most people ground to uh, ground to a halt and stop buying. Um, that's what the majority of people did. You know, and I've talked to people that haven't bought in the last 10 years since um, they, you know, they stopped buying um, when Mortgage Express shut their doors and they've never come back to it. I mean, that's not necessarily typical. But, um, you know, I have spoken to people like that. But so I think people got um, more, a lot more creative. Now. So that, that leaves me lovely, actually. It's a very nice segue into creative finance because that is your speciality now, Kevin, is it? It is, yeah. So yeah. What, what does that mean and how does it work? Well, OK, so I think there were, there were three uh, creative finance post-credit crunch split off into three areas. The blatantly fraudulent, which I don't see quite as much of now, but it, but it still pops its head up, which is a massive deception of the lenders. So it's buying a property and effectively lying to the lender about how much you're paying for the property, doing some sort of backdoor deal with the seller that they give you back your deposit once you've completed. Blatant fraud. That was quite relevant in um, the post-credit crunch time. Uh, don't see so much of it now. Some people use the, um, the ethos of be your own bank type of thing. So they went looking for private money and they did. And that's really where joint venturing was, was born, using other people's money, the private money to buy your, your deals because the banks weren't lending at the time. Third way was the creative use of bridging. Now, I had a very successful, you know, in the, in the, early to late 2000s, I had a very successful brokerage, employing staff and the like, but it all come to a halt, crashing halt with the credit crunch. I mean, there's a, there's a guy of mine, he ran a, um, uh, a big mortgage brokerage. Now, pre-credit crunch, they had, they had over 200 mortgage brokers working flat out providing mortgages. Right. That's, that's our boy in the market. Right? I mean, he survived but he only survived by scaling that down to three advisors. And that's how he kept his business. So, you know, I went from, you know, my, my turnover dropped 80% in three months. Wow. Literally um, almost like stopped overnight. Off a cliff. Yeah. Yeah, literally off a cliff. Um, and, you know, all the stuff that I was doing, it just didn't work anymore. So at that time, four out of four, five mortgage brokers um, left, left the business, found another way to earn a living. You know, I often say if I'd have any, had any sense, I, I'd have left too. But, I mean, I, I really resonated and connected with property investors because I was one and I am one. So, you know, 
I was really, really reluctant to just walk away from all of that. And I thought, right, there's got to be a new business model. I guess I sort of effectively hibernated, I guess you could call it, for a year or so while I sort of researched these ways to do things. How did you do that, Kevin? Because back then, say back then, wasn't that long ago, but back then we didn't have the networking groups that we've got now. So how did you get to market? What was your main in? Actually, I mean, I was going to property meetings, you know, back in 2004, 2005. Were they as big as they are now? Or are they just no, small local no, groups? There wasn't the proliferation of it there are now, but there were meetings dotted around the country where property property investors used to get together. It wasn't it wasn't um, organised. You wouldn't didn't have big networks, um, you know, like the two big networks you've got now, as well as the independents. You know, yeah, I was going to um, uh, property meetings right up until the credit crunch. I think they sort of stopped quite a bit um, in that immediate period. But once I'd worked out there were ways to use bridging that would not exactly replicate what happened with Mortgage Express, but similar to some degree, I just started going back to property meetings and I, I would just chat to some of the people there in the breaks. This would have been about, I think, 2010 or 2011. And a couple of hosts at different meetings overheard me and say, yeah, that sounds interesting, Kevin. Do you want to come and give us a talk on that? You know, and the first, I remember the first one I did that um, it never occurred to me, to, you know, to have a, a PowerPoint presentation, anything like that. I just printed off some um, uh, some examples and handed it out. So I did, I did handouts. Um, hey, you know what, when I started presenting, we didn't have PowerPoint. We had the old, what they called acetate uh, slides on the old. <laughs> yeah, acetate slides. Yeah, I remember those too. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I mean, it sounds antiquated now, but. Um, yeah. For those people listening and thinking, what the hell are you on about? We used to have overhead projectors or OHPs, we used to call them. We used to have yeah. some clear see-through plastic um, A4 slides that we'd print our slides on and they would project onto the screen. Showing yeah. our age now, Kevin. I know, yeah. Um, go on, I haven't thought about those for years. <laughs> so creative finance. So you, so you sort of um, started talking on those small networking groups and you were asked then to go and you know, present your wares and stuff. So what did creative finance look like to you at that point? Okay, um, it was simply um, not putting 25% down, getting a mortgage for the rest, and leaving your money trapped in, you know, and I mean, the brand name that I coined at the time and I still use today is Recycle Your Cash. Mm -hmm. So it allowed you to buy a property, improve it, and then either sell it or refinance it, get as much of your cash back out as you can to do it again. I mean, there's a term now that's come, uh, uh, wasn't in use then, but it is now momentum investing. So mm -hmm. essentially it's taking one pot of cash that would only buy you a limited number of properties, sometimes only as much as one or two, but by recycling it out of each deal, you can buy infinitely more with the same amount of, of cash, the same pot of cash. And that's that's fundamentally how I've built my portfolio. So yeah, how do people do that now? Because I've got a multitude of questions that surround that particular topic. And I think that that is quite popular now with people talking about no money left in deals and you know recycling your cash and all of that kind of thing. And it's still as popular now that I presume it was when you started. Absolutely, because it's the, only, it's the only way that most people which have got limited capital um, are going to build a portfolio of any appreciable size. 
Yeah, and then uh, and the and the other bit that fits in nicely with this, and it's another question I get asked a lot in my Facebook group, is how do I get commercial valuation on a property to get my money back out? So we'll toss that to the to the side for one minute and go yeah. back onto recycling your cash back out. Yeah. For those that want to do this, and for those that are still trying to do it, how how do they do it? What what's the secret? Okay, I've identified two fundamental um, aspects that need to be present to make it work. One is a nice to have, the other is an, uh, an absolutely must have. So the first one is to buy below market value. Now, a much overused term, and I yeah, think- can, bit, can people do that, Kevin? Is that real anymore? Could, you know, people talk about BNV a lot. Yeah, um, but, but it's misuse and it's misappropriation in recent years. It's, a, it's become an imprecise term. I prefer a more precise way to describe that. And it's about buying below true current value. You know, if you can buy a property that, let, and again, use simple figures, it's on the market for 100,000. You know, it's probably worth 100,000, but in time honored fashion, um, it's owned by a motivated seller um, who are one of a small proportion of people um, that advertise their property on Rightmove and wherever that haven't got the luxury of waiting six, nine, 12, or even longer months or even longer to achieve somewhere close to the asking price. Something in their life is more pressing. You know, those listening have been on any sort of training, you'll have been trained on what those are. You know, people who's, um, I, I won't spend much time on them because you know you'll probably know them. People whose marriage or relationship is is breaking up, um, people that want to live close to the family, people that need to relocate for job reasons, people that need to uh, relocate country-wise and move to a different country, people who live in a property that's currently not appropriate for their needs. Uh, you know, a simple example of that would be someone that lives on a third-floor flat with no lift but they've got mobility problems. So people with a pressing need to sell their property and people will sell their property cheaper than, it, than it's actually worth if it, it is a way to resolve an impasse in their life. So they're stuck, they can't move forward and to allow themselves to move forward, they could be open to selling their property below what it's truly worth. So if, if you're the right type of buyer and they're the right type of seller, you could quite easily pick up that property and agree to buy it for 80,000, even though it's worth 100. Is it harder? It, it, it can be harder. I mean, they're still around. You know, it, it's harder if you've got a buoyant, a buoyant area. So when London was booming in the early part of this decade, virtually impossible to buy anything below true current value in London. doesn't mean to say people didn't buy property, they, they focused on the second part, which I'm going to come to. But now London's flattened, flattened off a bit, um, and the, 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 you know, the, the, the cream's come off the top of that market, you know, um, in, in again, the right circumstance. There's always going to be a very small, small minority of properties for sale on the market generally. So if you can buy below true current value, that's an advantage. It's not an essential, but it's an advantage. Now, okay. the second part is absolutely essential because if you can't do this it's not a deal and that is you have to buy a property that's got the ability to add value preferably significant value now 
people do that different ways. Um, they do it by, you know, a straightforward refurb, like a cosmetic refurb. Um, converting it to an HMO would be a very obvious one. Extending it out to increase the living space. Converting it from commercial to residential. Splitting titles. So these are all different ways that people would, you know, add significant value. Um, also, buying problem properties and solving the problem. You know, um, I, I, I talk a lot and I teach a lot uh, about unmortgageable properties because they are a goldmine opportunity. But, you know, for someone that's got, let's say, a construction background, you know, they would be very comfortable buying a property with structural defects. Now, mm. you're going to pick that up really, really cheap, but they would, using their construction knowledge, fix it, significantly increase the value and then refinance it or sell it for a profit. The key things to getting your cash back out of a deal to recycling your cash are if you can buy below true current value, great, but you have to buy properties where you're sure you're going to get an increase in value. Mm. Yeah, and then that's that's where you get your money back out. And I know that properties that people can purchase that you can have floor space to, going into integral garages, you know, making yeah. extra bedrooms, all of that yeah. is, you know, helps people get their money back out of the deal. Yeah. So Absolutely. true added value. Kevin, yeah. I could talk to you literally for like the whole day on this. Now, I know there's lots of different things that people can do in order to be creative with finance. I've got a, just a final couple of questions, and I know that you actually teach this. So I want to be able to uh, let everybody know about your forthcoming course. But sure. I've got just two questions I want to ask you. The first thing is, are there any products available at the moment for serviced accommodation? Because that's quite a new strategy. It's quite the new thing. Um, is there anything or is it just a case of doing it on a buy-to-let mortgage? No. Uh, simple answer is yes. And it's not new. There always have been. Right. Um, there's always been um, mortgages for people doing short-term letting. Now, they're the mortgages that hotel owners, bed and breakfast owners, guest house owners use because it's the same model. Renting okay. by the night instead of um, by six to 12 months. So, um, it, you know, it's a it's a little bit more involved than that. But as a as a um, uh, superficially, yeah, there's always been uh, mortgages for service accommodation. Um, you know, commercial lenders would lend on service accommodation as they would if you if you had a and b Okay. And then the other aspect is people that have got a bad credit file. So how important is credit score? And if people have got county court judgments, is that end of for them? Do they have to go out and find other finance? Well, um, <laughs> as in most things, the answer is it depends. Mm. Now, it depends on how recent they are. It depends on how big they are. It depends on how long ago they were settled or are they still outstanding. So lenders like, uh, some lenders are very intolerant. And if, there's, if they find one on your credit file, um, you, you're immediate, it's an immediate decline. Some are a little bit more... Um, amenable if they can see it it's not a current situation it's a historical situation and some of them say that if it's more than three years ago um they would overlook it mm. now if it and again if it's if it's a matter of um less than a hundred pounds um again that would be looked at more leniently less than a thousand pounds more uh not quite as leniently more than ten thousand pounds and that gets viewed more seriously because you know that uh, you know anyone can make it. You, know, you see, people have a county court judgment for seventy-three pounds on a mobile phone bill. Mm. 
Yeah. Now that's not the same as a fifteen thousand um, pounds CCJ um, for you know whatever it might have been for. It's going to be on its own merit then, basically. Yeah, but you know, if you've got a if you've got a, a CCJ um, and you haven't got a reason a, a realistic explanation for it, so it could be you know with a mobile phone. Well, I didn't know about it because I moved the address and they didn't. They kept sending the bills to the old address. Yeah, you know what? We see that a lot with tenant prospects. They didn't know they had a CCJ. Yeah, um, it's for like forty-five, fifty pounds. It doesn't disqualify them, and it is more often or not the mobile phone companies that we do see it with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and the other big ones are um, um, mail order catalogs. Right. Yeah. Do they you still know, exist? Do people still use them? <laughs> Kay's catalogs. That's still out there. Uh, yeah, I mean it's probably an online version, but yeah. it's but that but that um, form of buying buying um, stuff on credit, uh, which is essentially what it is, and paying making a weekly payment still exists. Yeah. Uh, I, it's another blast from the past. I used to have um, um, what the lady that used to live over the road when I grew up was a Kay's catalog agent, That's it, Kay's. and I used to get all of my stuff from her. I used to yeah. I remember I bought my first. Technic stereo system and it yeah. cost me 10 pounds a month to pay That's for right. the stereo system yeah. and it was just the best thing ever but now it's all amazon and, and argos and what have you kevin we're <coughs> an, hour, we're an hour in and you know i had so much more i wanted to ask you but i think um i, I can't do that now because obviously you know um we're going to be into probably two hours and then we'll be into half the day but i know that you do help other um budding and aspiring property investors and current yeah. property investors and you do have lots of resources available um, what what courses have you got coming up in the okay. near future? <clears throat> well, what I would say is that um, I think we still got plenty to talk about. So you know, maybe in a few months' time or whenever you feel is appropriate, we'll do another. We'll do another yeah. session. Definitely. Let's do a part two. Uh, we'll have to do that. <laughs> we'll do as many parts as it takes. <laughs> That's it. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so um, you know, <clears throat> and when you think you know, I run a three day course on this. Um, you know, it's not surprising that I can talk about it for more than an hour. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, you know, I do uh, Ninja Investor Program. I've been is my, my flagship um, three day event um, where you learn everything you need to know about creative finance. Um, so it's how to buy properties uh, and not put anywhere near twenty five percent deposit down. Um, how to buy the types of properties that um, uh, very few other investors want to buy and how to finance them. That's all about the unmortgageable stuff how to um, maximize the refinance value when you're trying to pull your cash out, uh, how to make yourself uh, indispensable to estate agents, so how to, how to make agents love you. It's all sorts of that stuff. So that's the full thread. And I, I run those in um, four cities throughout the year, London, Leeds, Bristol, and Birmingham. But every so often, which I'm doing over the next few weeks, I run a little um, taster event which is the um, Property Finance Masterclass. Now, it's more than just a condensed version of the three-day course, because that, be that would be really shortchanging people. So it has some elements that you don't get on the three-day course. One of them is um, we have a whole session of open Q&A. So all the stuff that we've done here um, you know, for the last hour, you know, we'd have a session where you know, the room just fires any question on property finance. And as I've done with you, um, in the direction that we've gone based on your questions today, Rick, I just answer. So people find that invaluable, um, that they get the answers to, the, to their most pressing questions. Um, I also uh, share some stuff uh, on mindset. Um, and this is where I share the precise mental techniques that I used to beat cancer in eight weeks in 
2016. Yeah, that's awesome. And 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 I say to people, uh, the challenge there is, if I can make these techniques work with cancer, and I teach them to you, which I do on the property finance masterclass, um, why can't you make them work in something like property? Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, and and I also give a bit more of an insight into um, the stuff that I've said. Um, you know, with the putting less than twenty five percent down and buying the unaltered properties and that. So. Um, and, you know, I really hammer down the price on that because I want to make these property finance masterclasses available to uh, to everyone. So I've got four come, four summer ones. I only do them every so often. And I've got four at the summer. Um, so depending on when people are listening to this, mm-hmm. um, the first of them is in Birmingham. And that's on Saturday, the 25th of May. 2019. Uh, 2019, yes. <laughs> Just for those that might be listening to it in a couple of years' time. Yeah, nice to add that, yeah. Um, so then in June, I've got a couple. I've got Bristol on the Friday, the 21st of May, 2019, followed by the following day, London, um, Heathrow, actually, uh, on Saturday, the 22nd of June. And the last of them is Leeds on Friday, the 12th of July. Okay. So, if, um, how do people contact you, Kevin, about those? Yeah, they're they're a uh, um, I mean they're a crazy price of forty seven pounds for the day. Awesome. So, um, uh, well, uh, you can uh, two ways. You can just give me a call. Uh, my number is 07-889-526-979. Um The website for booking one of those forty seven pound days is um, rycmasterclass.co.uk. Awesome, so. Kevin. Thank you for that. So, folks, you know, Kevin is a wealth of knowledge. And Kevin, and uh, I've bumped into Kevin around the circuit over the last five or six years. And, you know, everyone I speak to about the creative finance strategies that Kevin teaches has absolutely brilliant things to say. So for £47, get yourselves over to one of those programs. Kevin's just left his details. Give him a call because it's all about knowledge and knowledge is power. And the more knowledge you have, the more strategic you can be and the more successful you will be in your property investing. So, Kevin, I want to say thank you once again for joining me today. We are over an hour now. Let's pick this up again. Let's do a part. To I'll drop you a line privately and let's get it booked in the diary. Okay, my pleasure, Rick. Awesome, Kevin. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. So, folks, thank you for listening to the show. We've got loads more really inspiring guests coming up. If you need to contact me at all, you can raise me either in my Facebook profile, which is Rick Gannon UK, or you can drop by to my Facebook group, which is the HMO and Property Community Group. I nearly forgot the name then. That would have been poor, wouldn't it? Or indeed, you can email me at rick at neweraproptysolutions.co.uk. Thanks for listening, folks. See you on the next show.